Joshua and Caleb were carefully walking through a lush valley in Canaan, approaching the valley of Eshkol. The men were in disguise, wearing the covering of the people of Canaan, hiding the best they could their beards, but what was unmistakable was their sandals. They still wore the same sandals that they wore out of Egypt, and there was no wear upon them. Have you ever seen one? Caleb said as they walked down a dirt path into a giant field heading up the hill. What? Joshua said. One of the giants, Caleb whispered. I haven't, but Moses talks to them. Korah even said he saw one in Pharaoh's court. He said he was gigantic. His muscles and body were huge, but his face was kind of distorted. He said the Pharaoh would bring him in when others questioned him just to intimidate and infuriate them. I haven't seen one. How tall do you think they are? Joshua looked at his friend as they walked. He was sincere, not fearful, just curious as to these giant men. They say the ones in Egypt are tiny compared to the ones in Canaan. Korah said the ones in Egypt were 15 feet tall. Just then they heard a sound and slow, slowed down as they approached a crossroads. The men took cover and they watched local Canaanites walk by. This was when they started to hear new sounds from over the hilltop. It sounded like metalworking. There was deep, deep, very deep voices and the sound of men working. They jumped back on the path and continued their approach up the hill as they continued talking about the giants. Their armor must be made by expert craftsmen. Their shields and swords would be impossible to yield. It is no wonder the citadels and castles we have seen so far look so impregnable. Check out this fruit, Caleb said as he plucked a fruit from a tree. It's huge. Don't eat it, Joshua said. I hope the rest of the spies follow Moses' instructions and do not eat of these trees. It's just like Adam and Eve. Hobad the Kenite said the fruit is not of this earth. He's been asking the people of the land about the fruit. No one will tell him the origin of the seeds in this tree and all the others. They say the seeds are a secret as old as the land and the giants that inhabit it. The sounds over the hill began to increase as they approached the top of the hill. They walked quietly to the hill, very slowly and silently until Joshua spoke. Moses says, we have to kill them all. Caleb didn't answer him as they topped the hill and looked down. Moses says, we have to kill them all. Joshua said again, just as they topped the ridge and witnessed the valley of Eshkal below. The scene was incredible, like an advanced civilization with giants, with huge orchards, a massive multi-storied fortress, and advanced aqueducts. There were hundreds of Canaanites with wagons and donkeys supporting the thirty giants, working the orchards reaching high into the trees at harvest time. A few giants were carrying stone boulders and placing them in a formation to handle the harvest that was being dumped into these walled areas. The giants, or Nephilim, were twice as large as the ones in Egypt, and had huge arms and legs. Each of the giants were proportioned different, while each one had a distinguishable yet almost deformed face with ogre-like features and varying facial hair. Joshua finished his sentence as Caleb was taking the scene in. We have to kill them all. They are not of this world. God did not create them. They are a mixed, hybrid, demonic race that has stolen our inheritance. This is the land of Abraham. This is the land of our fathers, and we must retake it 
from them. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast, episode 36, Caleb and the Anakites. After the northern military campaign, it says the Israelites were at war for a long time. At this point, the Israelites had been at war for at least seven years, and it says Joshua and the Israelites had destroyed 31 kings and their kingdoms. The promised land was theirs. Well, not actually. Most of Israel was conquered, but some areas failed to be conquered. It's more like the Israelites overthrew the principalities and major powers and rulers, but they couldn't catch everyone. The mopping up operations were not so easy. Scattered enemies remained in the hills and the mountains, and other large tracts were not conquered. The land is now primarily Israel's, but there were areas that were not conquered. For simplicity... The coastal area of the current Gaza Strip and above were not conquered by Joshua. In addition, the current Golan Heights and land north of this and Jerusalem were not occupied. Jerusalem was conquered twice but not occupied. The problem in many cases, especially after the northern campaign, was Israel destroyed the enemy armies and burned some cities but failed to occupy the land. Israel was excellent at war but was not the best at occupation and mopping up operations. To the north, Israel would not occupy the areas of Lebanon and Syria of today, allowing other nations to arise in these locations. Only King Solomon would have these areas under his control or direct influence. There's an interesting parallel to today. If you look at the areas not conquered with the troubles of Israel today, if you lay the maps upon each other, of the land that Joshua did not conquer, compared to openly disputed Israel territory today, there are similarities. They're not perfect, but the parallel is clearly there. The areas that are troubling today and hot spots for Israel are the Gaza Strip, which Joshua failed to occupy, and the parts of the West Bank, which is the area west of the Jordan River, which is questionably Palestinian territory. These areas were mainly conquered in the war with the southern kings, but the city of Jerusalem was not occupied, and a few other spotted regions were not occupied as well. The other area or hotspot is the Golan Heights, a territory bordering Israel and Syria. This area and land north of it was not occupied by Joshua. It's amazing when you look at the symbolic meaning of all this today. It leads to an interesting question. If Israel, at the time of Joshua, fulfilled the promise of Abraham completely and wholeheartedly, would there be problems in these regions today for Israel? Alright, so after the northern campaign, Israel ended up at Gilgal, where Joshua divides the land according to the tribes. This is a big deal because it was commanded by Moses that each tribe in their land was representative of their purpose, calling, and destiny, which was prophetically acted out in the sons of Jacob, the twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Each of the sons would receive a blessing and prophecy by Jacob, which would tie into their land grant in the time of Joshua as commanded by Moses. Each would fulfill a prophecy and have a purpose. Without getting into all the tribes and their inheritance, I want to point out a few. Manasseh and Ephraim, the two sons of Joseph, had the most abundant and fruitful land, while some of the other tribes just had mountainous terrain. Judah had lots of land to the south and would be bordered with Benjamin, which lays the city of Jerusalem within the boundaries of the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem would be given to Judah because Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, would not be able to take the city in war. It was left to Judah to capture the city, which they did as a nation with Joshua. They also did it in Judges as a tribe. And in the book of Samuel, David would capture it for Judah as well. It is in Jerusalem where Jesus would offer his life for others, just like Judah offered his life for his brother Benjamin in the court of Pharaoh in the time of Joseph. The land of Benjamin would have at its center the city of Gibeon, the city-state which would be the central Amorite nation to survive the Joshua invasion due to their ruse back in Joshua 9. Imagine it like a gigantic city that survived an invasion. I like to think of it as like a lone German city that escaped firebombing in World War II. It's a well-developed trade center with no signs of warfare touching its city center. But there is the other side. Darkness still reigns in the city, which will resurface itself later. In addition, there are the sons of Levi or the Levites. The Levites were not given land to inherit, but they were called God's people and priests and servants of the Most High. They would be funded and live off the priesthood of God's tabernacle. This arrangement would work in an age of prosperity and generosity and faithfulness. But in a shallow time of unfaithfulness to God, the Levites will be available for the highest bidder, which we will see very soon. All right, so back to Gilgal. So as the division of the land is occurring, something really cool happens. It's interesting how some Bible characters come up again and again in history, and it's really cool how the next two episodes are more like part twos to certain Bible stories. Enter Caleb and Phineas. Here is Caleb part two. Now it was time for the people of Judah to receive their land. Here's the account, Joshua 14, 6. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephneah, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord, my God, wholeheartedly. All right, so we've got to stop here. You've got to imagine this scene. If you want more background into what Caleb is talking about, you can download episode 21, titled 1438 BC, The Spies, the Nephilim, and Rebellion. The beginning of this episode was the beginning of the titled episode that I just read. 
It was an awful day for Israel when Israel failed to believe the minority report, the most accurate faith-filled report from the two spies, Joshua and Caleb. Instead, the entire community, minus a few people, believed in the ten spies and their fearful report that they would all die when they stepped foot in Canaan. All right, so let's check out this declaration. I imagine this 85-year-old Caleb like this. He's muscle-bound. He's a weight lift. He looks like a weightlifter. He's sunburnt. He's scarred from war. His veins are popping out of his arms. I mean, he's a huge guy, and he's defying his age because of his faith in God. And it's interesting how he's been so quiet for so many years. But now he returns from the same vigor from 45 years ago. And at this point, he really appears to be that perfect balance of patience and strength. I would prefer to see him in the light of perfect obedience, waiting till the perfect moment, serving others first until his moment of glory. I like how he said he gave the report based on his convictions, the same minority report that the people didn't listen to. And he said, I followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Let that be said of you and me, that we followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Here's the rest of his declaration. It is powerful. Joshua 14, 10. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there, and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Wow. In summary, check this out with just the keywords this time. Here I am, Caleb. I am 85 years old. I am as strong as I was at 45. Now give me my land. Oh, what power. I mean, seriously, what a guy. I mean, he is going after the promises of God. Seriously, he wasn't just asking for land. Here's Joshua's response. Joshua fourteen thirteen. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jophnia, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. All right, so this sounds great. Caleb made an aggressive declaration and received a land grant from Joshua. Now this is where he takes the land and returns to the valley that he saw so long ago and takes the land of Hebron for the Israelites, right? Right? No, sorry, but I wish this was the case. This is the weird part. This is where Caleb gets some of his labels as a procrastinator. Actually, one of the worst in the Bible. He and Joshua were probably at the same age of 85 at the time of the land grant. And Joshua lives until about 110 until he dies. After Joshua's death, at the beginning of the book of Judges, and it says after Joshua died, this is when Judah attacks and takes Hebron. Caleb outlives Joshua and finally leads the military campaign, which attacks Jerusalem and Deber and Hebron. So why does Caleb wait another 25 years 
I have no idea. It's crazy to me why he does this. So here's a spoiler alert for the Book of Judges podcast on Othniel. Caleb does take the land in a grand military campaign, which sweeps Jerusalem and Deber and Hebron, which we'll discuss in an upcoming Judges Othniel episode. But in this campaign, Caleb takes for the tribe of Judah, Hebron, and he defeats the three sons of Anak, the three remaining Nephilim in the area, most likely the same giants he possibly saw when he spied out the land so many years ago. Over the age of a hundred years old, Caleb led his tribe in attacking the remaining nations and people groups in southern Canaan. Here he is leading an army at his elderly age, and he wasn't opposing just another nation. We're talking about giants. Let's talk about these giants. The Canaanites were defiled with sin and atrocious demonized activities, which I hope to cover in the next episode when we discuss the legacy of Joshua where we touch on the defilement of bloodlines by demons and the religious practices of the Canaanites. But as for these Nephilim, these were the true deal, half man, half demon type. I like to think of those Greek myths of some legendary hero who was half God and half man. This is like the Anakites. Interesting here is that there are family groups of Nephilim. We discussed one of them earlier when we were talking about King Og. Another one is the Anakites, and there are a few more. Anak was a giant who had three sons, and they were based in Hebron. They were mentioned by the spies so long ago, and they were still alive. It's these guys that Caleb faced down at the end of his life. The massive demonized giants principalities in their own right taken out by this old-timer. These giants were so well-known, their names were given in Judges 1.10. They were strategically placed there, no doubt, by the devil to claim the place of Abraham's inheritance, his burial site at Hebron. The significance of Hebron cannot be understated. It is a place of burial plot of Sarah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, the home of the patriarchs. It would later be the place of King David's anointing as king of Judah. Hebron was one of the last places taken by the Israelites, the one strategically guarded by three massive giants who were defeated by Caleb near the end of his life. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I'm going to dismiss Caleb's procrastination and emphasize what Moses and Caleb did at their elderly age over a hundred years old. They fought and won battles. What does this mean? I've heard that the Hebrew language has no word for retirement. Well, I researched this and it's not necessarily true today, but the point still remains. Back before social health care and 401ks and social security, people had to depend on God more. People didn't have the resources at their disposal to sit back and relax and say, I've worked enough. In an age when knowledge was on the lips of the elderly, the elderly and experienced were treasured and a valuable resource to anyone hungry for truth and wisdom. The minds of these men of God were alive and active. 
serving God's purposes well beyond their prime, and their bodies were not limited with age. Moses and Caleb served as examples of men who defied age, and with supernatural strength overthrew principalities at an extreme elderly age. We need more Moseses and Caleb's today. Some time back, we were speaking with one of the founders of Dayspring Cards. And if you don't know Dayspring Cards, it's one of the largest Christian greeting card companies in the world. And it is now owned by Hallmark. The founder we were speaking to is now in his late 80s or 90s. And the one thing that he kept saying was that he wanted to finish well. When asked about what he wanted to accomplish in his remaining years of life, the answer was simple. I want to finish well. Wow, after accomplishing so much, he just wanted to finish well. It's really a powerful thing to see true humility. Also, it is no wonder America's most famous living evangelist, Billy Graham, just recently conducted a television event called My Hope, where he communicated the salvation message to millions across the world in their living room. At the age of 94... He is still going after God's promises. Just like Moses, Caleb was a man who fought for God. With supernatural strength, he persevered to fulfill God's purpose for him. Caleb's love for God and his promises were stronger than death, even in his old age. I love this verse. I've heard it titled before, Love is Invincible. Song of Solomon 8.6 For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we wrap up the book of Joshua and discuss the diplomacy of Phineas. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.